Good to be here in the house of God this morning. Sunny, relatively warm. The buds are on the trees. Winter is dying. And I don't miss it. Amen. God bless summer. Let's all stand. <clears throat> there are some that like all four seasons. If we had four seasons here, that'd be wonderful, but we don't. We have winter and summer. That's really about it. <laughs> Amen. Uh, thank God for two seasons. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Uh, we have a lot to pray for with that we've people we've been praying for situations. Uh, continue to pray for them. Pray for our service this morning, uh, that God would have His will and His way here. In every service, we have to understand that God's will must be accomplished. We have needs that, that we're seeking the Lord for, certainly. And uh, I believe it's God's good pleasure to take care of those for us. But at the end of the day, we are His servants. We are His people. This is His church. He's God. He sits on the throne. And whatever He wants to come to pass, whatever He has for us, whatever He desires uh, to, to give us and to see transpire in our services, that's what we want. That's what we need. Amen. So let's pray. Let's uh, pray that God would do exactly that, that His will would be manifest here today. Lord Jesus, I am so thankful for You. I am so thankful for Your so great salvation, for Your great love, compassion, and mercy that You demonstrate to me every minute of every day. Hallelujah, Jesus. I am overwhelmed with the deluge of Your blessings. Hallelujah, Jesus. Your blessings overwhelm me. They overtake me every single day. Thank You, Jesus, for Your goodness. Thank You, Jesus, for Your greatness. Hallelujah. We pray, Lord, in this service today that Your will would be manifest. We have things that we're seeking. We have things that we desire. But at the end of the day, we, we are subservient to You. We submit ourselves unto You that Your will would be accomplished, that Your plan would be manifest. Hallelujah, Jesus. We don't have the whole picture, Lord. You do. You know what's right. You know what's best. That's what we seek today. That's what we desire of You today. Hallelujah, Jesus. I pray, Lord, that Your great name would be glorified here in our midst. That Your name would be lifted up and magnified, worshipped and praised, as is Your due. You are the King of kings and You are the Lord of lords. There is no one higher. There is no one greater than You. Hallelujah, Jesus. We laud and we magnify Your name today. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. We worship You. We worship You and we delight ourselves today in the God of our salvation. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. Your name is to be praised. Your name is to be worshipped. Your name is above every name. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. Praise God. We're continuing on our lesson, uh, our study of the doctrine of God. And uh, by way of review, 
Uh, last week we started uh, the concept of monotheism or that he is one versus the concept of the Trinity, which is a belief that the Godhead consists of three persons. And there are various weights that are placed, depending on who you're speaking to, uh, concerning Trinitarianism. Our assertion is that the Bible teaches that the Godhead consists of one person, three offices. His name is Jesus Christ. Colossians 2 and 9 says that in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Amen. That is our profession today. We're looking historically as to if that is the clear teaching of Scripture, why does the majority of people today believe that there are three persons in the Godhead? And so we're looking to history to try to understand a little bit how that transpired, how that came about. Uh, We see that originally, and for the first few hundred years, the church believed in oneness. The church believed that God was one. The Godhead was represented, different offices, but one person, Jesus Christ. And so looking through history, we see that that is true. The apostolic age, the second, third centuries, uh, we see that that, uh, different people, Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Polycarp, they all wrote, taught, preached that God was one, that God came in the flesh and died. Moving on, we see two very important names. Uh, Sibelius, who was the presbyter of Pentapolis in North Africa, his name becomes synonymous historically with the idea of oneness, Sibelianism. Uh, we see historians refer to that idea that God is one as Sibelianism, or you are a Sibelianist, you're guilty of Sibelianism. Uh, that's primarily historically what people refer to that as, a follower of Sibelia. I'm sorry, Sibelius. So, uh, he becomes important, and a man by the name of Tertullian becomes important. Because his writings, his ideas, uh, he was the first proponent of the idea that there is more than one person in the Godhead. He didn't have a fully developed idea of the Trinity. He believed primarily in two gods uh, to the point of being uh, polytheistic, uh, which he was accused of. But uh, So he becomes important because it was his writings, it was his teachings, his ideas that formed the basis later at the Council of Nicaea for a fully formed doctrine of Trinity. Moving on, as mentioned, the Council of Nicaea, that's where the doctrine was formalized and codified. Uh, Those of us who were perhaps born and raised in a different denomination, we remember the Nicene Creed. We had to memorize that. Amen. There's a lot of good things in the Nicene Creed. But not all of it's good. Amen. Priscillian, we'll hear more about him. He taught that Jesus was God appearing to man in flesh. 
He was the Bishop of Avila. And that's kind of where we left off. So today, we're going to pick up with the 5th, 6th, and 7th centuries, 8400 to 8700. By the time we get to this point, the Western Roman Empire had effectively disintegrated. Uh, the Roman Empire in the West had largely been broken up. I don't know if destroyed is a apt term, but it's certainly it was certainly a shadow of what it used to be. Uh, this event is generally recognized as taking place in 476 when the Germanic barbarian king uh, Odoacer deposed the last emperor of the Western Roman Empire in Italy, Romulus Augustus. This, of course, left an enormous power vacuum that had to be filled. And to a great extent, the Roman Catholic Church filled that for all of, the West, for all of Western Europe. And... In our lesson here today, we're going to go through some history that doesn't directly pertain to Trinitarianism or the idea of oneness. But I want to lay some groundwork. I want, I want us to understand what was going on kind of in the background historically, because a lot of this really does indirectly tie into what we're talking about here today. So, from A.D. 100 to A.D. 600... Most of the theologians were bishops who, through ecumenical councils, formulated doctrine. Okay? After that, to about A.D. 1500, most of the theologian, theologians we read about or are going to be speaking about today are those monks, and their interest was primarily preserving doctrine. Uh, they would preserve the doctrine that these ecumenical councils of previous centuries had come up with. We're going to find uh, as the Roman Catholic Church gains power, uh, the popes gain power, that certain things are no longer allowed to be questioned or discussed. Once the pope has made a ruling, once the council has determined this is what the doctrine is, uh, then that's it. There's no more discussion on the topic. That's it. So during this period... Theology as a discipline suffered, and many, that allowed many superstitious elements to enter into the church. By the time of Pope Gregory I, who was elected Pope in A.D. 590, a lot of this was already taking place. Okay, Leo I was actually the first pope to claim universal authority as a pope. And he was able to secure imperial endorsement of that claim. However, Gregory was the first bishop of Rome who was actually successful in exercising that authority. Okay? For this reason, most historians consider Gregory I to be the first true pope, as we understand the term today. Now, he's important for our discussion today because Gregory I systemized theological thought and he established the framework for the Roman Catholic Church, uh, what the Roman Catholic Church would be built on for the next 500 years. Okay? He was not very innovative, but he legitimized and popularized many doctrines and practices that had already been developed or were developing. 
He used papal authority to approve of and integrate into the theology of the Roman Catholic Church many superstitious and pagan elements. Namely, the idea of purgatory, the sacrifice of the Mass or Eucharist, and the worship of saints, angels, relics, and images. That was later downgraded to veneration of saints. But at this point, people were actually worshiping them. Gregory stated and believed that tradition was equal in authority with the Scriptures. Therefore, the official pronouncements of the church were equally valid as those of Scripture. We understand today what a dangerous precedent that is. They believed that the same Holy Ghost, the same God that had inspired the writers of Scripture, had also inspired the church fathers, councils, and popes in their proclamations of truth and doctrine. They were equally inspired. They were equally valid. Among the many doctrines that were practiced at the time, he used papal authority to establish the doctrine of the Trinity. He was a proponent of that. And not exactly related to the doctrine of the Trinity, but kind of goes into that. Gregory also supported a view known as the miraculous birth of Jesus, whereby Jesus did not physically open the womb, but he was miraculously transported out of the body without affecting anything in Mary. And we're going to talk more about that when we get into the era of King Charlemagne. That would come to a head during his reign. But the idea was that this would serve to keep Mary's virginity intact, her physical virginity. Okay. And that was a big deal for the people of the day. Priscillianism. Okay, named after Priscillian, the Bishop of Avila, during the second century, which we talked about last lesson. He was excommunicated by the Council of Saragossa in AD 380 because of his modalistic view of the Godhead. In other words, he believed in oneness. That's what modalism is. Modalistic monarchianism, if you want to get technical. In the 5th century, Priscillianism gained impetus through the influence of barbarian invaders. The barbarian invaders didn't really believe in modalism, but what they served to do was... uh, pillage and destroy towns and cities and villages, and they were effectively able to run the bishops out that were against modalism. And so, kind of as the indirect influence of the barbarians, modalism, or in this case Priscillianism, was able to flourish and grow in Spain. Effectively, uh, the bishops in Spain were driven out or went into hiding, and so that effectively lifted the restraint that these bishops had placed on it. We see uh, in, in history, Pope Leo wrote a letter July 21st in 447 A.D. condemning the Sabellianism of Priscillianists. Gesundheit. Montanus of Toledo wrote in 530 A.D. against Priscillianism. Pope Vigilus wrote a letter to Profusus of Bracca on June 29, 538, expressing concern over information from Profusus about the persistence of Priscillianism in northwestern Spain. 
The first council of Bracara in 561 strongly denounced extant Priscillianists that held a Sibelian understanding of the Godhead, or uh, remaining Priscillianists. By the 7th century, they had become a small and insignificant force in Spain. The bishops that went into hiding were able to return and reestablish the doctrine of the Trinity. We know that it still existed past then, though, uh, because there's a letter of Brolio, Bishop of Saragossa, 631-651, to to a Galatian presbyter and monk, Fructuosus, who was curious about Priscillian beliefs and was seeking Brolio's advice. Brutus's advice. The 4th, 6th, 11th, and 16th councils of Toledo repeated the condemnation of Sabellianism on the basis that they believed that there were three persons in the Godhead, not one. Okay. Damien was the patriarch of Alexandria from 570 to 605 A.D., he is noted for opposing tritheism, particularly the doctrine of one uh, John S. Askenazes, who established pure polytheism and formed a school to teach exactly that. A monk by the name of Athanasius stood behind this tritheism. Damien, however, stated that the persons were merely attributes of the one God. And I'm bringing up these names again to establish the fact that in every period of history, there were people that preached and taught truth, as we find in Scripture. In every period of history, God had a witness here on the earth. It may have been a small one. Uh, It may have been a tiny percentage of the Christian population. But He's always had a witness. The Eukites. The Eukites of Syria and Asia Minor propagated their beliefs from about the second half of the 4th to the 6th century. They lived holy lives and believed the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost to be different forms of one divine being. They are known to historians under various names. Some were called by their respective leaders. Uh, Adolphians, Eustonasians, Marconites. They are sometimes referred to as uh, Mesel... Uh, Messalians, because of their practice of continual prayer. Coriorites, they were called that sometimes because of their mystical dances. Enthusiasts, because of the extreme joy they had from time to time. Now, it is important to note that some of these groups, uh, this is one of them, They may have believed in one God, but they had other ideas that were a little bit off. Okay? Uh, These guys, we're going to find a few other groups. Uh, They generally, not not exclusively, there were exceptions, a lot of exceptions at at times. But generally as a group, they held to some form of dualism. Uh, And that is the idea that the material universe is evil and the spiritual universe is good. And that always seems to lead to the idea that Jesus did not come in the flesh because flesh is material, it's evil. And so uh, some of these groups that professed Sabellianism also held to some erroneous views. So just keep that in mind.
We find a condemnation of Sibelian, Sibelianism at the Lateran Council in Rome in 649 A.D. In a writing called the Quintusext from 692, it speaks of Sibelians and the way to admit them back into the Catholic faith. And I quote this document. And on the first day, we make them Christians. On the second, catechumens. Then on the third day, we exercise them, at the same time also breathing thrice upon their faces and ears. And thus we initiate them, and we make them spend time in church and hear the Scriptures, and then we baptize them. So they were trying to systematize a, a process whereby they could bring them back into the fold, as it were, from their heresy. Okay, Islam. Not directly important to our study of, of uh, Trinitarianism, but in 622, Muhammad had founded Islam in Arabia as a monotheistic religion. It has been that ever since. The early Muslims spread quickly, conquering Arabia, the Middle East, and North Africa. Again, this will become important later. The Byzantine Empire held them at bay in Eastern Europe until about 1453. They were able to conquer Spain, and they threatened Western Europe until Charles Martel, grandfather of Charlemagne, defeated them at the Battle of Tours in France in 732. They were eventually defeated in Spain in 1212, but weren't totally driven out until the 1400s. Okay, more on them later. Moving to the 8th through the 15th century. King Charlemagne. Most have heard of King Charlemagne, the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles the Great, King of the Franks, etc., etc. He was crowned the Holy Roman Empire by Pope Leo III in the Basilica of St. Peter on December 25th, 800. That date wasn't a coincidence, by the way. It was very much symbolism. According to Paul Johnson in his work, A History of Christianity, he says this, Two days later, in the great Basilica of St. Peter's, Charles and his generals celebrated Christmas, this now being December 25th, and the Pope insisted on performing a Roman ritual under which he placed a crown on Charles's head and then prostrated himself in an act of emperor worship, the crowd of Romans present calling out a monotonous series of ritual acclamations. Unquote. I include this quote uh, to state this. By this period of history, the Roman Catholic Church uh, was quite divorced from Scripture. Okay? Their idea that uh, the church was able to determine truth by themselves. They were able to determine doctrine. They had the authority to do that had degenerated to the point where uh, at this period and a couple centuries after uh, is considered probably the worst period of the Catholic Church as far as the popes are concerned. The corruption, the degeneracy, the immorality that was openly displayed at this point in time is mind-boggling. And we see kind of the beginnings of this here, that the, the Pope was so adamant about participating in a Roman ritual where he prostrated himself before the emperor. Uh, 
And this was okay. This was perfectly fine. Now we're talking about oneness, we're talking about Trinity. But understand the overall picture. Scripture is pretty much gone. It's paid lip service to. Yeah, we believe in the Bible. Yes, the Bible is inerrant. Yes, 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 yes. However, we're going to interpret that. We're going to let you know what that means. That is not correct. That is false. That is error. Okay? It is the responsibility of every Christian to know the Word of God, to hear from God, to pray, to fast, to seek the face of God, to seek understanding, to know Scripture, to know truth. It is all of our responsibilities to do that. Otherwise, we end up with this. Now, on a positive note, his rule brought peace and stability to Western Europe by exerting strict control over both church and state. There was quite a bit of chaos from the fall of the Roman Empire to this point, politically, economically. He brought peace and stability. Maybe not through the best methods, but he brought it. This period is often referred to as the Carolingian Renaissance, as his name in Latin is Carol. Carolingian. This brought a renewed interest in culture, education, and theology. This led to new doctrinal ideas being propagated. So, during his reign, during this period, we quickly see a lot of controversies popping up. There were several, several controversies. I will mention a few that relate to uh, the Trinity or oneness. The first is called the Adoptionistic Controversy. There were some Spanish theologians that began to teach the doctrine of adoptionism. According to this view, Christ is the eternal Son according to His deity, but as a human, He is an adopted Son. His human sonship was the result of an adoptive act by God, maybe at conception, maybe at His birth, maybe at His baptism. More debate on that. But at some point, the Father adopted the physicality, the, the physical body of the Son. Charlemagne rejected this doctrine in favor of traditional Christology, the traditional idea of the Trinity, and the church followed his leadership. Filioque controversy. Originally inserted into the Nicene Creed at the Council of Toledo in 589, which eventually contributed to the East-West Schism of 1054. That's where the Western Roman Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church split. They became two separate entities. The Eastern theologians taught that the Spirit proceeds from the Father only. The Western theologians taught that the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. Filioque, or of the Son. That's where that word comes from. The East saw this doctrine as detracting from the dignity of the Holy Ghost. The West saw it as necessary to create a proper balance in the Trinity, establishing a one-to-one -one relationship between each member. 
Of course, what this really served to do was establish that the Father was really kind of the one in charge in the Trinity. A leader among equals, maybe. In any case, Charlemagne ended up supporting the Western view, and this became official church doctrine. The Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father and the Son. There was this controversy over the miraculous birth of Jesus, which we touched on in the time of Pope Gregory I. By this time, the glorification of celibacy and the worship of Mary had converged to the point that almost everyone believed Mary was a perpetual virgin. Augustine taught this. Even after she married Joseph, she remained celibate. That was the teaching. That was the belief. What about the brothers of Jesus? Hmm, good question. Well, it turns out that they were cousins of Jesus or maybe sons of Joseph by a previous marriage. But not from Mary. The church ultimately ruled that the birth was indeed miraculous and that Mary remained a physical virgin her entire life. Was that because of Scripture? Of course not. That was because of popular opinion. It was to quell the mob, as it were. All right. Everyone's favorite topic as a Christian, the Crusades. No one's favorite topic. Okay. I'm just kidding. Seven military expeditions. There were seven crusades in total. At least those that went to the Holy Land and tried to free them from the infidels. There were seven of them that lasted from the period of 1095 to 1291 in which Catholic Europeans attempted to conquer the Holy Land from the Muslims. In 1070, the Seljuk Turks took Jerusalem from the Fatimid dynasty of Egypt and began to mistreat Christian pilgrims in holy places and were even threatening the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Empire, in Constantinople. Thus, in 1095, Pope Urban II called on all God-fearing Christians to do their duty and free the holy lands from the infidels. And he offered a lot of incentive to do so. What was known as plenary indulgences. And what those were, was they were one indulgence that would cover everything for the rest of your life. You'd still have to confess your sins to a priest and and receive forgiveness, but you'd never have to do penance again. And for them, that that was a pretty sweet deal. That was good. So they uh, they went on these crusades. And uh, we'll leave that and we'll move to another area. The Bogomils. These were spiritual descendants from the Yukites, which we talked about just a little bit ago, who found converts especially among the Slavic race, particularly the Bulgarians. They grew rapidly, although secretly, and came to be known in the 12th century as Bogomils. They were strong proponents of Sibelianism in the Byzantine Empire, first headed by the priest Bogomil, 
and constituted perhaps the most powerful movement of dissent in the medieval history of Eastern Christendom. Dmitry Oblensky, in his book The Byzantine Commonwealth, says this, From its original home, which was probably in Macedonia, it later spread to many areas of the Byzantine Empire, enjoying a brief, though spectacular vogue in Constantinople at the turn of the 11th century. Survived in Bulgaria alongside the, the largely separate uh, Paulician sect until the late Middle Ages and spread westwards from, I'm sorry, to Serbia and Bosnia and in the second half of the 12th century exerted a powerful influence upon the Paterine and Cathar or Albigenses movements in Italy and southern France. And we'll talk more about those later as well. Okay. Emperor Alexius Comnenus wanted to rid Constantinople of Bogomilism, and so he invited Basilius, the chief leader of the sect of his day, to the palace under the guise of wanting to convert. <coughs> but it was in his heart to entrap him. So what he did was he hid a stenographer behind a curtain, and his job was to record everything that this individual said. So, the emperor started asking Basilius questions about his doctrine. Basilius stated that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are merely titles ascribed to the Father. He confessed his disappointment of transubstantiation, viewing communion as symbolically done in commensuration of Calvary, according to the Scriptures. Now, transubstantiation is the idea that when you're taking Mass, and the priest pronounces the blessing over the Mass that the wafer and the wine convert to the literal flesh of Jesus and the literal blood of Jesus. And that's what's being, that's what's being eaten and imbibed. Uh, he did not subscribe to that. He continued, he revealed his dis distaste for Mariolatry, worship of Mary, Saint worship and image worship. And so after all of this was revealed and recorded, the curtains were opened and he was busted. Despite repeated attempts to force him to recant, Basilius held to his beliefs. Because of that, he became the first Bogomil martyr in 1119. After this act, the emperor, the aforementioned emperor, started an inquisition against the Bogomils. Some recanted, others held fast to their profession. Those who didn't recant faced imprisonment for life. And that's exactly where they ended up, in prison for the rest of their lives. During this time also, there was a man by the name of Peter Abelard. He was born in 1079. He became one of the most renowned philosophers in the 12th century and also a noted theologian. He wrote a work which was called, I couldn't pronounce the original Latin, so I translated it, On the Unity and the Divine Trinity. This writing was condemned as Sibelian by the Synod of Soisin in 1121. All right. In Geoffrey Garrett's Sykes book, Peter Abelard, he says this, it seems, however, certain that the charge of Sibelianism preferred against him at Sosians, the council there, was based upon some sure foundation of fact. Unfortunately, 
the proceedings of that council are no longer extant, or they no longer exist, while the passage to which, according to the account of Otto of Freising, exception was taken, cannot be found in any of his writings. But one passage in the De Unitat, part of that title that I translated, is Sibelian, and may have been the one preferred, referred to by Otto. There Abelard says that, quote, God is three persons in such a way as if we said that the divine substance is, is powerful, wise, and good. Similar Sibelian opinions can also be found elsewhere in his books, unquote. So, all that to say that Peter Abelard was at least accused of being a Sibelianist. Later, at the Council of Sens in 1140, Abelard was defamed and was kept from making his own defense by a, na- by, by a man named Bernard. Not David Bernard. <laughs> he comes later. Who later became a saint? Saint Bernard. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I was trying to move past that quickly and I wasn't fast enough. Cathari and Waldenses. The Cathari, which were influenced by the Bogomils of the Eastern Empire, became strong in southern France, north Italy, and northern Spain. In some areas, they even became prominent in the 12th century. The Waldenses were started by a rich merchant of lions named Waldo in 1170, 1176. Yeah, there's another one. Just can't go fast enough. (laughs) Where's Waldo? Well, uh, here he is. He was inspired to get closer to God and ask the theologian what he should do. The theologian quoted Matthew 19.21. If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Well, Waldo did just exactly that. He sold everything. He provided for his family. He got a hold of a New Testament and began preaching repentance. Him and his followers eventually appealed at the Third Lateran Council in 1179 for permission to preach. They were summarily denied. But he continued to preach anyway. And uh, that led to his excommunication by Pope Lucius III in 1184. So, all of that all of that brings us to the Synod held in Toulouse in 1229. The convening members there came to some conclusions. Many of these problems, they determined, the Cathari, the Waldenses, others, the reason we're having these problems is because they have access to the Word of God. So how we're going to take care of that is we're going to outlaw the Word of God for lay people. And that's exactly what they did. They outlawed the Word of God. That's where we see Bibles chained to a pulpit, Uh, in medieval Catholic churches. So, (laughs) the the human condition is a very fascinating 
The human creature is very fascinating. How we think, how we respond to situations, uh, is it fascinates me. Rather than go to the same scriptures these people are going to, to see where are they coming up with these strange doctrines? Where are they coming up with this stuff? Rather than doing that, they, they knew they were right. That was never in question. They knew they were right. They had to be wrong. They were just misinterpreting Scripture, probably. Who knows? In any case, that seems to be the problem. So let's remove it. Let's remove Scripture. Let's remove truth. The idea, and I know Christians get accused of this a lot. I think largely it is a false accusation, but in, in individual circumstances, I think there may be some, some truth to it. We get accused of holding the monopoly on truth. You're right and everybody else is wrong. And we believe that. I believe that. I believe Scripture is right and every, everything else is wrong. That's what I believe. But when one man or one group of, of individuals becomes the sole source for determining what's right and wrong, folks, that's a problem. That's a problem. The way God set this up is He gave this to everyone. This isn't to be guarded. This isn't to be uh, cloistered away and interpreted by some by anyone. It's to be read and interpreted by you and by me, and by all people. Understand what I mean when I say interpreted. That God reveals His truth to us through His Word. Also at this Senate, this Council, in 1229, they formalized the Papal Inquisition. What a fascinating council that must have been. They had already had inquisitions before this, but at the Senate, they formalized it. So this brings us to the Inquisition. In the early 13th century, Pope Innocent III announced a crusade against the Albigenses, a large separatist group in southern France that rejected papal authority, also called Cathars, they were uh, or Catharis. They were also guilty of Sabellianism. The Catholic armies attacked town after town, executing everyone who refused to pledge allegiance to the papacy. Why would they need to pledge allegiance to the papacy? You'd think if they were going to force allegiance to anybody, it would be God. 
tomato, tomato. One and the same. When the town of Beziers in southern France refused to surrender its heretics, the crusaders conquered it and massacred 20,000 men, women, and children. This is the beginning of the Inquisition. This campaign against the Albigenses led to the establishment of the Papal Inquisition. It was relatively mild at first. This, uh, This panel judged certain books and doctrines as acceptable or unacceptable. Okay, fair enough. Later, of course, it became an organized terror machine. Many people were falsely accused by political opponents, greedy officials, or jealous neighbors. Since the professions of the accused would be forfeited to the church, state, or his accuser, many people had a financial interest in the investigations. If your neighbor, who you didn't like, was getting ahead and you weren't, it was an easy enough scenario to accuse them of heresy. And part of that reward would be yours. Not a bad gig. Understand, again, the overall climate of the period here. The average person, what they understood was this. Without the Roman Catholic Church, I'm damned to an eternity in hell. That is my only salvation. Not God. Not Jesus Christ, the sacraments that were performed by the priest, the sacraments that were part of the Holy Roman Church. That is our salvation. That's what they believed. That's what they were taught from the ground up. So it was a very serious thing to come against that organization. Okay? Excommunication was a very big deal. Because that meant I can't be saved anymore. So that's a serious threat. I come against this organization. I'm a heretic. I don't have the right to question them. Now we believe, I believe, that I don't have the right to question Scripture. I don't have the right to question God. I do have the right to question people. I'm going to do it politely, respectfully probably behind closed doors. I'm not going to make a scene about it. But I have the right to question people. I will not question God. If I understand something in Scripture, that's it. That is it. That I believe and subscribe to with all my heart. Now you can question my interpretation of that. That's fine. I'll do my best to explain why I believe that. You see what I'm trying to say here? God is not to be questioned. The creature does not have the authority or the tools necessary to analyze and critique God. Okay? I hope everyone understands that. When we set up ourselves as judge of God's Word, then we become the sole authority. And we're going to judge line by line if this is true or not. And we don't have the authority or the right or the tools necessary to do that. 
We don't judge God. We don't tell God he's wrong. We don't tell God how could you do that. That's immoral. His actions are the very definition of morality. (laughs) I'm going to tell God he's wrong. I'm going to tell him he's immoral. Okay, you understand what I'm saying. But that's how everything was done at this period in history. They didn't know the Word of God. If they did, it was probably... If they had a Bible and they read it, the importance of that was never emphasized. At best, it was never emphasized. I can just go to the priest and he'll tell me what it means. I'm just going to get this on Sunday, Sunday Mass. Spirituality wasn't enforced. It wasn't emphasized. Adherence to the sacraments, adherence to the church, that's what was emphasized. Submission to papal authority, that's what was emphasized. There was no idea of spirituality. There was no idea of being Christ-like. No idea of a relationship with God whatsoever. That's the climate we're in right now. So when this organization turns around and starts accusing you of heresy, that's a big deal. When you start getting in your mind, I don't think they're right on this. I don't think there is a trinity. I don't think transubstantiation is is found in here at all. You start getting those ideas in your head, That's dangerous. That's dangerous to you because of what's coming down your way. And that's dangerous to the church because now you're challenging their authority. Okay? That culminates in the Inquisition. In 1252, Pope Innocent IV authorizes the use of torture for suspected heretics. Later popes condoned it. In 1280, Pope Nicholas III threatens to excommunicate all laymen who discussed matters of the Catholic faith or who failed to report a heretic to the authorities. Can you imagine that? This brings up an interesting uh, question, topic. The idea of, this just popped into my head, so I'm going to mention it and move on. The idea of uh, freedom of religion. You know we don't find that anywhere in Scripture. Under the Old Testament, there was no freedom of religion. God didn't let you just worship whoever you wanted. If we were to follow a a strict biblical interpretation of that idea, where would that lead us? How would we enforce that? I'm just throwing that out there. Something I've been chewing on. <clears throat> Freedom of religion is a is a 
U.S. thing. That's a United States thing. Now, generally, I think it's, I think it's, you know, it's a flawed system, but I think it's the best compromise we can make. I'm not saying abolish freedom of religion, but I'm also saying that that's not found in Scripture. God doesn't, he's not a proponent of freedom of religion. He's a proponent of one religion, one relationship. Interesting. In any case, uh, the Catholics most certainly were not a proponent of freedom of religion either. Uh, So, they enforced it with military might. A common method of determining whether a person was guilty or innocent was to use torture. If the person was innocent, it was believed that God would protect them from the pain or the harm. If you're innocent, this isn't going to affect you at all. If they confessed under torture, which most people did, then you were guilty, just like we knew. If they refused to confess, maybe they were innocent, but it was more often believed that well, they're able to resist because of the power of Satan. Satan is protecting them. You see the explicit contradiction there? <laughs> okay. Torture methods included flogging, putting people on the rack. You know what the rack is, right? It's what you put your kids on when they don't eat their supper. Throw them in a dungeon, roasting their feet with fire. When I was, uh, I was recalled during Desert Storm and sent to Germany, uh, and after the war was over, we never got to go over, but we were waiting for transport back to the States. So for about a whole month, we were, they commissioned tours for us. We, they'd put us on buses and ship us to different cities, and we'd spend the day at a German city. It was wonderful. Paid vacation. I don't know why anyone was complaining. I was having the time of my life. But anyway, I was able to tour some of the old uh, Catholic churches there. And in, their, in some of their basements, they still have some of these devices set up, some of these torture devices. Has anyone ever... Uh, yeah, I, I figured you guys have. I still have pictures of these things somewhere. You talk about scary. You talk about just... What in the world could you possibly use a device that looks like that for? I'm not going to get into specifics. They explained how some of the devices were used. And it's, it's something that it's out of a horror show. And people actually went through that. In any case, if they were found guilty, some of the punishments would be severe penance, fines, banishment, imprisonment, or execution. Historically, the church refused to shed blood, but they came up with a workaround. Anyone know what that is? To execute people. Burn at the stake. That's right. That's how they get around that rule. They burn people at the stake. And they did that enough. The Spanish Inquisition was established in 1478 by King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. Anyone remember those names? And was modeled after the earlier Papal Inquisition. 
But whereas the Papal Inquisition was under the authority of Rome, the states had no say-so in those matters. The Spanish Inquisition was under the authority of the king. Under it, the Jews were expelled from Spain in 1492. There's another date that's familiar. The Spanish Inquisition didn't officially end until 1834. Isn't that interesting? 1834. So that's where we're going to leave off today. In the height of the Inquisition. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to finish the history aspect of this, bringing us into modern day, uh, what people believe and teach today. And then after that, we're going to start getting into specific doctrines, specific scriptures in the Bible. What does the Bible say about this? Amen. Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful for truth. I'm so thankful that you have made us, all of us, repositories of your truth, that you have entrusted us with it, and you have given us a responsibility, a solemn responsibility to know it, to study it, to teach it, to propagate it as you gave it to us. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. Help us to search the Scriptures daily to see whether these things be so. Help us, Lord Jesus, to know of a surety that your Scriptures are true altogether and that every man is a liar. Thank you, Jesus. Bless the remainder of our service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. We'll take a 15. Be back at quarter till.